Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Hey, be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua, if you would, please. We're going to be looking at chapters 8 through 5, 31 Kings is the title today. 31 Kings. We're going to be looking at Joshua 8 through 12. We're going to be looking at it kind of, again, at a big, big bite here. But before we do, as you're turning to Joshua chapter 8, let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a foolish decision out of fear or anxiety or worry? You ever made a decision that you wind up regretting? One that... uh, did not do well, and you wound up regretting it or facing the consequences. You wonder, how did it work out for you? And you realize, boy, I wish I could have that back again. Sometimes it may work out okay, then other times the consequences, the circumstances are are very difficult. Let me ask you, how do you respond when fear arises in your hearts or when doubts cloud your thinking? Typically, we don't think as clearly, right? We, we wind up making hasty decisions. Is your first inclination to pray for wisdom from God or search scriptures when, you faced, when you're faced with difficult situations? I hope so. Last week, Joshua and Israel had set their sights on the neighboring city of Ai, as you may recall. However, the people were in for a rude awakening as they suffered a humiliating defeat due to the sin of one of their own. We saw that last week in chapter 7 with Achan and his family. And through the sin of Achan, we learned of the treachery and the consequences of sin, the seriousness of sin, and its destructive cycle and progression. And I I pray that that was helpful for you. It was always helpful for me to understand how sin works and how it progresses, where I, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. That's always the cycle and progression of sin in our own lives. And we learn the concept of what corporal guilt is and how all can be guilty of of, of one man's sin. But yet we also saw the atonement for sin, sin, the provision of sin for that. This week we're going to cover five chapters of Joshua that are just a whirlwind of activity as Yahweh leads the nation of Israel through the systematic conquest of first southern Canaan and then northern Canaan. It ends with Joshua victoriously leading the nation to possession of the land and a time of rest. So with that, we're going to read Joshua eleven twenty three. It's here, on the, here on, the, on, the, on the monitor. You don't need to turn to that right away unless you're wanting to, because we're going to start in chapter 8. But looking ahead, we read this. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place here, to inheritance according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And Ben, uh, that TV back there just isn't on, so I I think that I'm throwing myself off looking and thinking, did I make a mistake or or what? So thank you for that. So again, as we see here, according to law, the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Father, that is what we yearned for. We yearn from rest, from war. 
not just politically and culturally and socially and from our nation, but Father, war within our own souls. We desire peace. We desire to live away and delivered from that presence of sin. But Lord, that doesn't come until the day that you return or our day of our day, the day of our death. So Father, help us to understand how Joshua helps us to understand how to live during this life of turmoil and stress and suffering. Be with us to grant us your peace. Help us to understand. In your name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to take a bigger bite of Joshua this morning as we consider chapters 8 through 12. And these chapters serve as a summary of the cities that were captured and destroyed, the kings who were defeated, and the land that was taken by Joshua and the nation of Israel. 31 kings in all found themselves with Joshua's sandals on their necks and the sword separating their head from their shoulders. We're going to take a moment to summarize each of those chapters. In chapter 8, we read that the obedience of the nation to punish Achan leads to a reconciliation with Yahweh, who then gives them a great confidence-building victory over Ai. Afterward, Joshua leads the people in reading and recommitting to the covenant given to them in the wilderness. In Joshua 8, verse 35, read with me silently, we see this, and there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Again, a little editorial note, and again, just to help you understand why we believe it's important now for children to be in here, you see that children are there with the reading of the will and the recommitment uh, to the covenant. This is important. Why? For them to understand and to see what is going on with the parents to learn how to worship Yahweh. In chapter 9, as we move forward, we learn that the fear of the Israelites leads to the deception by the Gibeonites. In the agreement of five kings to unite against them in battle. This confederacy consisted of five kings in southern Canaan. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All wonderful words, right? This confederacy will lead to a magnificent battle that we're going to read about in a little bit more in a moment. That leads to their devastating defeat. Yet one cannot blame this confederacy, this attempt to defend themselves. The word of the Israelites' power and army marching forward with total extermination on their mind as their goal is going to be enough to put the fear of God into anyone's heart. Now, hearing the same news and knowing that they were next on Joshua's hit list, the people of Gibeon fear leads them to adopt a different strategy. So in Joshua chapter 9, look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. They on their part acted with cunning and went and made provisions that took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, and with worn out uh, patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. They're, they're trying to present some type of perception that they were further from them that they, than they really were. Look at verse 6. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. And they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now, the people of Gibeon lived in about four different cities that were about a day's, day and a half's journey from Ai. 
Joshua and the leaders asked some questions to the Gibeonite visitors concerning uh, uh, concern that they might be lying to them and that they actually may be part of the people that they were to destroy. However, we read that Joshua and the leaders do not seek the counsel of Yahweh and they enter into an ill-advised and sinful treaty and covenant with them. After three days, the nation is surprised when that deception is revealed and the people begin to complain and threaten to nullify the treaty when they hear what their leaders did. And they want to attack Gibeon, Gibeon anyway. Grudgingly, though, the people accept a compromise as we read in chapter 9, verse 19. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them, speaking of the Gibeons, by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. In other words, we made a treaty with them. We cannot touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and draws of water for all of the congregation, just as the leaders had said. So self-preservation is Gibeon. They have fear and they, all they want to do is preserve their life. So they deceive Israelites by saying, we're from a far country. And they put all those things together and it looks like they're from far away. So Israel goes in this ill-advised treaty then only to find out three days later that they actually live nearby. And they're part of the Canaanites that they're supposed to destroy. Those cities, those four cities with the walls, with with the towns, with the villages, with the farms, they actually belong to Israel. God had given it to them. But here, because of the deception and their desire or, or their refusal to go to Yahweh to inquire, they wind up being deceived and lose. And eventually what they do is they just make slaves of these four cities. But see, they recognize that even though they made an ill-advised and sinful treaty, they had done it in the name of the Lord. And so they must protect the name of the Lord as they swore the oath by his name. What is interesting is that the Gibeonites make the same confession as Rahab did back in chapter 2. The only thing is we see it's not supported by faith but self-preservation. Look at verse 22 of chapter 9. And Joshua summoned them and said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? We, we don't want to get killed. We don't, we, don't want, we don't want to be slaughtered. Look what they say in verse 24. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty. Now that's a good word. It was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And now we behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us, do it. They were willing to become slaves for the next generations of their children. They would rather be slaves than defeated. Now, as we move forward to chapter 10, we read of the miraculous defeat of the five kings as Yahweh demonstrates his power and authority. Now, as a side note, we see that Jerusalem is first mentioned in the Bible, not as that beautiful city, not as the city of God, but actually as the enemy of God. It's just an interesting tidbit. 
This confederacy consisted of five kings who lead a powerful army against Gibeon because of their treaty with Israel. They realized what Gibeon had done and they become angry with those four cities. Gibeon quickly and wisely sent word to Joshua to deliver him from the wrath of these five kings as they said, now let's go to attack Gibeon for what they did. In verse 8, we read that Yahweh encourages uh, Joshua. He goes, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. No man of them shall stand before you. Doesn't matter how big they are, Joshua says, or God says to them that I am there with you. So Joshua, as we continue in that chapter, Joshua and his mighty men of valor march all night to reach the battlefield, ready to protect Gibeon, the ones who deceived him. And they strike a blow against this confederacy. Yet this is not going to be any ordinary battle, but a holy one as Yahweh enters the fray. Look at verse 10 of chapter, uh, I believe we're in chapter 9 still. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of ascent to Beth Horon and attacked them as far as, as Kia and Maccadiah. And as they fled before Israel, the confidence of these five kings and their army is demolished in one quick moment as Joshua suddenly arrives with his army. Fear immediately and quickly sets in and the confederacy begins to unravel as they turn and run from Israel. They were ready to attack Gibeon, but they, they wanted nothing yet to do with Joshua and his armies in a, in a panic and they turn and they begin to run. Yet the focus here is not on the size of Israel's army or Israel's mighty men, but on the actions of the Lord. Not only does he strike fear into their hearts, but as you and I continue in verse 11, read what we hear, listen what we, as we read. But as they fled before Israel in a panic, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Achaia, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. You see that? There was more people killed by hailstones than those that were killed by the sword. Now, how many of you have experienced hailstones? I know we don't get them very much here. And every once in a while when you get them here, they're, they're kind of exciting, right? But then have you ever been where it's just, I mean, just a torrent of them? And there's some large ones. We, we've experienced that uh, more so in the Midwest when we lived out there. But a hailstorm can be at first exciting and something new. But boy, when it starts coming down and you hear the roar of it coming down and then the pinging at first and then just the, the thudding as it hits your house and your car... Uh, it's just terrible. Uh, several years ago in the Midwest, it tore down in the city that we used to live in. It just tore down a bunch of roofs. Uh, hailstones did. I mean, hundreds, thousands of roofs were, 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 were damaged because of the size and the power of the hailstone. The sights and sounds are amazing. Yet what we're here is reading is we're reading of hailstones that were large enough to kill a man. Pastor MacArthur points out that the source and the size, the slaughter and the selectivity and the wrath of God's actions as we read here in verse 11. First, you see the source of the hailstone is God. The size is large enough to kill a man. The slaughter is more men are killed by the hailstones than those that were killed in the actual fighting. The selectivity, now this is interesting. 
Those stones that fell from heaven that the Lord threw down killed only the enemy. Did not kill any Israelites. Did not kill any of the Jews, the Hebrews. And not only that, we see the swath there. Now, not knowing the geography, we're just getting uh, the names of it, but looking it up, that was an area that covered around 30 miles and nowhere else. If that wasn't enough, we read in verse 12 as we continue. Is at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And Joshua said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ahan. And the city, or and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of the heavens and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord indeed or heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Underline that, for the Lord fought with Israel. With supernatural confidence, Joshua asked for a miracle. Son, stand still over Gibeon. And it's done. Yahweh listens. And supernaturally, God suspends the very laws of nature. Though we are drawn to the sun and the moon standing still, that's not the greatest miracle in this passage. The greatest miracle is that Yahweh actually listened and answered the prayer of Joshua. Even today, that's a great miracle is that God listens to the prayers of his people. Reminds me of the song in Psalms 8.3. Thank you for whoever said that. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, we can consider the beauty, the creativity, the awesomeness, the largeness of God, which you have set in place, he says. What is man that you are mindful him and the son of man that you care for him. Out of all creation, and as beautiful and as large as all of creation is, especially now as we look into whether it's the tiniest things of a microscope or into the greatest things of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, help me out, telescope. Why does God listen to us above all creatures? But God does. That itself is, is an everyday miracle that's greater than the sun standing still. And should it surprise us that the sun stood still and the moon stood still? And, and actually what you're saying is, is the earth stopped rotating to some degree. We don't know how all that worked out. And some would actually fight against this saying, see, this is just another story of fable. There's no way that this could happen. But let me ask you, is it hard for the creator of the universe who spoke the sun and the moon into existence on the third day to say stop. The one who began to spin the earth like a globe on its axis as you and I would as we were at home or in a school. Remember taking a globe and just spinning it? The one who did that on day two could just slow it down a little bit. We're talking about the almighty powerful creator the ultimate power of the universe. Forget He-Man. I guess a new He-Man came out recently. 
God is the original he-man, so to speak, maybe flippantly. This chapter ends with describing how the five kings ran and hid. But eventually they, they were found and executed. Joshua chops off their heads, hangs them on a tree land, and, and throws them into a cave. In verse 25, Joshua declares the words of victory. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Now, as we close out this chapter, and what a chapter it is, we see that the conquest of southern Canaan is completed, and the nation turns their attention now to the northern kingdoms of Canaan. And as we come to chapter 11, we read of the conquest of that northern Canaan. In 11 verse 4, as we go on to the next chapter, read that once again, he faces a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. So now they, they face again another large confederacy. These people are saying, listen, we've got to get more people. We've got to get greater armies, more powerful instruments of war. We, we've got to face these, these people. There, there's something miraculous and supernatural about them. However, it doesn't matter how many horses and chariots it doesn't matter how many people they are, if they're the sand of the seas or sands of the ocean, beach, whatever. The psalmist sings in Psalms 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand up. And the reason why we can sing that is because we continue is that to prove that point, Yahweh directs them to attack the enemy with courage. And he calls them to hamstring their horses and to burn their chariots with fire. Come against me with greater tools. And, and the, the Israelites did not have horses. They did not have chariots. They did not have the weapons of these others' established nations. This, this was an Israelite, well, they were sons of slaves that have spent their growing years wandering around in a desert fashioning weapons from whatever they have and maybe grabbing what they could from the cities that they were destroying. The writer of Hebrew, or Joshua, excuse me, records in chapter 11, verse 18, read with me, that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. Gibeons were the Hivites. And they took them all in battle. Now, that's an interesting story. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except those that went in deception. If one wonders, why in the world would anyone, why do they keep fighting Israel instead of trying to make peace as one army after another falls, as one king after another falls, as they continue to take possession of one farmland, one city, one village at a time. Why doesn't anyone else do what the Gibeons did? Why doesn't anyone else do what Rahab did and sue for peace? We find the answer in verse 20, and it's a difficult answer. In verse 20 of chapter 11, we read, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their heart, that they should come after against or against Israel in battle. 
It was the Lord's doing. Not only did the Lord fight for them, not only did he throw their enemies into panic and throw hailstones and, and hamstring their horses, but we also see that God worked in a heart to harden their heart so they would not sue for peace. Why? In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commands Moses. Now, for those of you, an editorial note, for those of you who are interested in Romans chapter 9, you might want to reference those two because there's some good teaching there, and we won't go into that today. But for those of you who like to get into the sovereignty of God, but what you and I are seeing here is just as God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, remember our study in Exodus, for his glory and Israel's good, he moves the minds and hearts of the Canaanites to war. And just as Roman 9 informs us, who can resist God's will? This, they cannot. And this may seem harsh to our 21st century sensibility, but God uses their hardened hearts to fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, we read that after five to seven years, the battle of Joshua is about five to seven years, that Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And as we move to chapter 12, it summarizes the victories of Moses and Joshua listing over 31 kings, allowing them to take possession of the land of God or the land that God had promised to them. 31 kings faced, 31 kings executed, died, so that Israel may have the lamb. Now, as we come to that, I want to consider three truths that we find in those passages. Now you say, well, how in the world do you find truths in that? This just seems like it's war. I mean, this, this is like Game of Thrones type thing, but uh, you know, I shouldn't even mention that. By the way, Christians, here's an editorial note. Christians should not be watching Game of Thrones. That's just Rob's editorial remark. You can hold it to me later. But I do want to consider three points to learn from this passage. Number one is fear leads to defeat or victory. Fear leads to defeat or victory. In this passage, we see that fear led the Gebanites to deception in order to preserve their own skin. That they were struck with fear is not surprising or should be surprising, I should say. As we read in Joshua 10 verse 2, if you want to go back to that, it said that Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, it was a larger city, it was, it was stronger it says, and all of its men were warriors. And so this is what surprised the, these five kings. That's why they come to attack Gibeon. And you may say, why in the world did Gibeon had fear of Israel? They, they should have been able to face them. They had a, a good opportunity or a good chance maybe to defeat them. You see, they had heard the reports of Yahweh's great power and the promise to destroy them and give their land to Israel. And scripture informs us that their fear led them to act shrewdly and cunningly to make a pact with Israel. Now, the Bible does not condone their act of deception. He's not calling us to be that way. And though it saves their lives, they do wind up becoming slaves for generations to come. Now, the fear of the five kings leads them to combine their forces, thinking that their vast army could then outnumber, outmaneuver, and overwhelm the nation of Israel. However, they were foolish. 
as they believed that they could outwit the almighty God of Israel. In both cases, fear led to either slavery or death. Again, they all had the same information. They all had the same reports as those of Jericho and Ai before them, including what Rahab had. As we've already looked at, they give almost the same confession that Rahab gave. But see, Rahab's fear, as you remember from chapter 2, led to a faith. A faith where she put her trust in God. Faith that God would hear her confession, and she pleaded for mercy. But not for these five kings, nor for the Gibeonites. In the same way, fear should lead you and I to faith, not slavery or death. And that's one of the things I want us to understand is many times in this world, fear will lead you to slavery or death. It will paralyze you. It will keep you from becoming the person that God has created you. Many have been paralyzed in their Christian faith because of their sin, because of ill-advised decisions. And we're afraid to move forward. We can't go backwards, but we can't go forward. And so we're trying to tread water. And all the while, worrying, how long can I tread? Let me ask, aren't you tired of treading water in your life? And in your Christian life? Feeling like you're not going any forward, but sometimes drifting backwards? There's a fear there. It also leads to death. Because it leads one to lose their faith and to show that they had no faith at all. One of the most successful tools in Satan's toolbox is that of fear. And he uses it against this one medical study reports that over 40 million adults in the United States, age 18 and older, suffer from worry, anxiety, and panic. These two conditions are the result of fear. Worry and anxiety are fueled by the fear of the future. The Gibeons deceive because they're worried what might happen to them by Israel, and rightly they should, as did these five kings. And so this, the, and then in the northern kingdom, there's a fear that is coming. Yet scripture calls us not to be anxious to worry or to live in fear. But in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. The scripture encourages us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God gives his children a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is something that we should have. But not as an enemy. But as one that points us to the almighty God. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. But only if that fear leads to a humility, to confession, repentance, and the trust in the Almighty Creator. So fear can lead to defeat or victory. For the Gibeonites, it led to somewhat of a compromise, to a little bit of a victory. To the five kings, the 31 kings, it leads to defeat. To Rahab, it led to a victory. Number two, the second truth that you and I should recognize is that the battles is the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. Scripture proclaims that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And all the assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into your hands. Zechariah says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
Let's not be fooled into thinking Jesus is just some long-haired hippie driving a microbus with a peace sign. He's a man of war. The battle is his. In Joshua 10.42, we read that Joshua captured all these kings and their land one at a time. What a great uh, remark. Wouldn't you like to have that on your tombstone? But that sentence doesn't end because it says, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. How was Joshua able to take this ragtag uh, ragtag army, group of armies and people, these children of slaves, and destroy a whole nation, 31 kings? Because of the Lord. And this is a common theme throughout these five chapters. As Joshua leads the nation against the various kings and kingdoms of Canaan, that theme that the Lord is the one fighting the battle. Now, this does not mean that Israel just marched around his watch and watched as God fought by throwing panic into their enemies or hard, large hailstones came crashing down or the sun was setting. They were not spectators in the conquest. They were you know, probably ankle deep, knee deep, shoulder deep in blood and gore, fighting. Some of them probably lost their lives as well. But what we see here is that God is on their side. To help us understand this, how Joshua was able to do this, and how God also fought for them, we need to understand the, how this works. And I got a long quote here, and it's here on the monitor so you can follow along. It's from John, Pastor John Piper. He says, the way these texts fit together, thinking about how does Joshua, the one that who conquers and takes possession, and how do we also understand that God fought the battle? How do do we put these two things together? He says, there will be no conquest without what? Obedience. Obedience, thank you. God will not fight for his people who are fighting against him. Get that. See, I think many of us are wondering, why are we still struggling in our sin? Well, God is not going to fight for people who are fighting against him. To order, or in order to succeed, he writes, Joshua and the people must be courageous in God and obey his commandments. But when this happens and the conquest is successful, the people may not boast and say, it was because of my righteousness that God drove out the nations. For God has seen the wickedness of these nations and purposed to destroy them. And he had made the promise to Abraham. I, you know, did I, am I missing something here? Okay, are we good? Okay, for God had seen the wickedness of those nations and purposed to destroy them. And he had made the promise to Abraham and purposed to fill it long before there was any righteousness or goodness in Joshua and the people he led over. The conquest of Canaan was decreed prior to any righteousness in Israel. It was part of the certain promises to Abraham over 400 years prior. No generation of Israel could presume that it, was appoint, that it was the one appointed for the conquest. If any generation in Israel had tried to say it was God or it was, God could have simply said, you shall die in the wilderness and I'll raise up another generation until there is a people who rely on my mercy and my sovereign power than on their own merit. That's important for us to understand. 
You see, the battle is the Lord's, but he has called you and I to follow him. Now, this is a wonderful truth. God fights for us as we live in obedience to his word. Let me give you that once again, because this is what I want you to get. God fights for us as we live in obedience to his word. If you're disobeying his word, God is not fighting for you in the way that you like him to fight. However, there are going to be times that you and I doubt that. We wonder if God hears our prayers. We wonder, does God understand what I'm going through? Does he understand the suffering that I'm, that I'm, uh, that I'm enduring? We doubt if he's even capable of working. Maybe this is outside of God's power. But here's what you know. This is extra. It's not on the screen, not under. Here's three things. Sometimes God works through miracles and wonders. Sometimes he stops the sun and the moon and he works a miracle. We see that very many, many times in scripture. We see that with Jesus. Sometimes he speaks a word. Sometimes he calms the storm. But also there are times where God heals today. And cancer is healed without the doctor's involvement. There's a healing that takes place and we can't understand it. So sometimes God works through miracles and wonders, but many times God works through ordinary means. Yeah, God healed or Jesus healed by telling a blind man can see, but there was one time he spit in the ground and made a mud pack and put it on the man's eyes. And said, go wash your eyes. Supernatural event, but see through ordinary meal, ordinary ways. One time Jesus paid a tax by saying, hey, go fishing. So they go fishing and they find a coin in the fish's stomach. So sometimes God is going to just work through the ordinary means of a doctor or for a friend or through just regular obedience. But here's this. Sometimes God works through miracles and wonders. Many times God works through ordinary means, but all times, all times, God works for his glory and our good. Can we get that? All times, God works for his glory and his good. If we could just grab that. The battle is the Lord's, and he is fighting for his children. But sometimes you are looking for the sun to stand still and the moon to stop when he's really said, I'm just going to work through the ordinary means. And sometimes we're looking for ordinary means and we're not praying for the miracle. God hears the words of his people. But let me tell you, whether God works in the supernatural or through the ordinary, God works at all times for his glory is good. Now that may mean that suffering continues. That may mean death occurs. Because that's actually the greatest miracle and healing of all time. You think of death as the end of all things. But let me tell you, death is the beginning of all things new and all things wonderful. It is a healing that can never be taken away. It is the giving of new life. And for we as Christians, this is a little extra pastoral note. This is something that you and I need to understand. We need to understand the biblical understanding of what death is. 
We do not mourn as those who have no hope. Death is not the end of the line, but it's in the presence of our Savior. Just as Yahweh destroyed the armies of the 31 kings of Canaan, Jesus destroyed the works of Satan. Amen? This should give you and I the courage, the boldness, and confidence and hope that you and I can face another moment, another day in a world that is hostile to our faith and that is full of suffering. For God is still on our side. Number three, not only is the battle of the Lord, but number three, obedience leads to possession. Obedience leads to possession. As long as Joshua and Israel was obedient to the commands of God, they were successful. And to do this, you and I need to know God's word. How can we be obedient to, to a word that we don't know? How can, we, uh, how can we obey God's word if we don't seek to understand his commands? Sometimes they are difficult, are they not? And then we must apply them to our lives. The thing the men and I were sharing last Wednesday at Panera was the fact that many times we know what God's word says. We understand what God's word says, but we don't apply it to God's word to our lives. We understand the Bible tells us to love our wives and live with them in an understanding way. But how many times do we find loopholes and ways not to do that? And then we wonder why our marriage sucks and why things are difficult. How should God, why should God fight for those who fight against him? This passage is teaching us that there are consequences of not seeking the counsel of God. So obedience leads to possession, but we've already seen twice here that Israel is in danger. Once with AI when sin was taken, the breaking of faith. But now we see that there, there now is, is some possession of the land that they don't fully take because of, because of their failure to inquire, to pray to the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, remember King Saul. It says that King Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that, he, in, the, in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And he also consulted a medium, a sorcerer, seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Uh, Saul was not, allowed, was not allowed to possess the title of king. He was not able to give it to his son, Jonathan. Why? Because he broke faith. How did he break faith? By not seeking the counsel of God. Scripture tells us of King David. He inquired of the Lord nine times it's recorded in Scripture. But there are several times when he did not. And one time in 1 Chronicles 15, a man died because they did not inquire of the Lord or seek him according to his word. In Zephaniah chapter 1, I believe it's here on the monitor. Yahweh says this, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off. Oh, you know what? I didn't put that on there. Sorry about that. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Here's the thing. You and I don't have possession of many things in our lives. Maybe it's our thought life. 
Maybe it's our affections. Maybe it's the way that uh, our choices, because we do not inquire the Lord. And the question many people have, do I have to pray over everything? Or how do I know what to pray for? How, you know, why, why, why did Joshua need to pray over this, over the Gibeonites? Well, he needed to seek the Lord's wisdom. First, he went against the Lord's command. And if he was going to choose not to, he should have inquired, but yet he did not. I want to give you several things. And this comes from Capitol Hill, uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Love this church. Love a lot of the things that they do here. But this, again, is not on the monitor, but there's, there's three ways. There's, there's a way that you and I can make a hierarchy of decision-making. First is matters of righteousness. These are things that are so clear in Scripture that you and I do not have to ask and pray about whether I should do it. Should I kill? No. Should I steal? The Bible's pretty clear. Should I covet? The Bible's very clear. It tells us, should I love my wife? Bible says yes. Should I respect my husband and, and submit? Yes, the Bible tells. These are things that we don't need to pray about, though there might be some which I kill. Well, should I be in the army? Should I be a prosecutor and seek the death penalty? So on and so forth. But here's the thing. There are matters of righteousness that are so clear in Scripture that you and I don't need to pray over these things. Should I cheat on my taxes? No. Should I pay my taxes? Very clear, given to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Jesus taught this. Should I let anger and be bitter and resentful over someone who hurt me? Forgive. And you will not be, or you will not be forgiven. These are things that you and I don't have to pray over. These are things that should be second nature to us as Christians. So that's why we learn and teach and help each other in those cases. But number two, there's another sense in which there's matters of good judgment. These are things that are not necessarily labeled in Scripture, but yet I want to make a good decision. This might be, should I get married? Or should I marry this person? Where should I live? Should I buy this house? Should I go to college? Should I go to this college? What job should I be in? The Bible doesn't give us those things. But there are biblical principles. In other words, should I marry this person? Well, the Bible tells us what type of person to marry. Let believers marry believers. It tells us to, to make sure that they're of good character, that they love God. Should I buy this house or live in this house? Well, again, these are things in which scripture principles come to play. And those are the matters in that we may be praying. Lord, give me wisdom. Should I do this? Should I do that? It's not a matter of righteousness, something that's clear. Then there's principles of scripture that we should put in this. Will this help me to love my wife more? Will this provoke my children to anger? Will this help my children and train them in righteousness? See what I'm saying? Should I take this job? Is there a good church in the area? Will I be able to find a council, a council of, of other believers? So all things find themselves in matters of righteousness. May, it may be very clear through Scripture, or it may be things we need to search out and pray through. Lord, help me to come to a biblical understanding. Who should I vote for? What party should I vote for? These are things that find themselves under matters of, 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 of good judgment. Then 30, there's, not 30, number three, there's matters of triviality. These are things that have nothing to do with the Bible. And it's really not necessarily a matter of, of judgment. 
Should I brush my teeth or not? I think your wife will tell you yes. If you love your wife, please brush your teeth. But you may say as I'm going to the store, oh my goodness, here's Colgate and here's Crest. Which one should I pray for? Bible, does it tell me? Oh no, what biblical principles will help me? Just pick one. It may have to go to what the cost is. It might have to go what's the best use for your family. It might be diapers. It might be, it might be what newspaper to read. There's all these things that really we spend way too much on the things of trivial. What should I wear today? Rather than the things of good judgment and righteousness. Now, God actually can answer those things. The Bible tells us all, both men and women, to be modest and to be ones in which we, we uh, glorify God through all that we have. So you kind of get that? So where are you in your life? So typically, you're probably not praying over what toothpaste you should buy. But you definitely should be praying over things that are not very clear in Scripture and things that are clear in Scripture. We need that. You see, what we find in Joshua's conquest of Canaan, that's where Israel failed. They failed in several. One, they failed in matters of righteousness. Do not make a treaty. And then they, then they failed in matters of good judgment and inquiring of the Lord to see if these were people who they were to say they were. So what you and I find in the conquest of Canaan, and this is what we're trying to get you to help you understand. So what in the world does this story have to do with us? Joshua, the Old Testament, was written for us today as examples. That's what the New Testament tells us. And Joshua serves as a great analogy of the Christian life. Many people think there's, and there's a whole bunch of old hymns. I don't know how many are in the hymns, but Beulah Land, the Promised Land. They, 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 they liken crossing the Jordan River and the Promised Land as, as heaven. Well, the Promised Land in the Bible is not heaven. In heaven, there is no sin, there is no struggles, there is no suffering. Joshua is filled with all those things. So it's analogous to the Christian life. As one who crosses the river Jordan, we are baptized into Christ, into a land of promise and promised rest. So the Christian life is in which we are now put into the promised land of Christ, and he is our rest. However, there is still battles that you and I must fight. What's that battle? The main one. It's sin, is it not? Be killing sin, or it will be sin will be killing you. We've been looking at that several weeks ago. So Joshua is analogous to the Christian life. It's our sanctification where we're becoming more like Christ and freer from sin. And it's in our Christian journey that you and I are going to have struggles, skirmishes, setbacks, and sufferings. We are going to have to face our fears. And the decisions that we make will decide our consequences and decide how God fights for us, our obedience. Yes, God has promised us redemption. He has promised us reconciliation and rest and reward. But it comes through perseverance, through endurance, and faith, obedience in God. Like Israel, we're going to face deception, rancor, anger, bitterness, and hostility. The world will seek to destroy us, paralyze us, and marginalize the Christian faith. We are already seeing the effects of that in our politics, in our education, in our social acceptance, and the cultural movements. 
And to combat this, you and I need to be innocent as doves, as wise as serpents. And they failed to do that when it came to the Hivites, the Gibbonites. We need to recognize that you and I do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not your spouse. It is not your boss or your, co- your co-workers. It is not your children or your neighbors. It's against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness. Now, that does not mean that it's President Biden or President, former President Trump or anything of that nature against the adversary, Satan. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's what I need you to pay attention to. We are called to obey God's word courageously and boldly in defiance of circumstances and consequences, trusting that the battle still belongs to the Lord. When he calls us to fight sin or sin will be killing us, he is battling for us. He has not abandoned us to the schemes of Satan. He has given us the armor of God, calling us to be sober and awake, but also to trust in his providence and provision for us in that battle. The greatest gift that he has given us is his wisdom. And wisdom is the skill of godly living. That's what Joshua and the people had to learn, the skill of godly living. How to live as a military force in a land that's hostile, that desires to fight you in every way. You also need to learn the skill of living in a godly way in a world that is hostile to your faith, that wants to paralyze you, discourage you, and to destroy your faith. That's what you and I can learn from Joshua. So how do I gain this wisdom? How do I recognize that the battle is the Lord's and and that I need to seek counsel and I need to obey? How do do I do those things? I want to end with these three things very quickly. There's three ways to gain wisdom. Number one is prayer. Take your Bible and turn to James chapter 1 if you would please. This verse you need to have marked in your Bible. You need to begin memorizing it this week. This is where we start. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to, Him to graciously open our, open our blind eyes to the truth. Again, this is from Capitol Hill. And this starts the day we are converted and continues until the day that we die or Christ returns. Look at James chapter 1, look at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the waves of the sea. Imagine that today, the waves of the seas, blown and tossed by the wind. This man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Men, let me speak to you this morning. Do not be unstable. Your family needs a man who's going to stand firm in his faith. Wives, mothers, God needs you to stand firm in your faith for your husband and for your children. Grandparents, the same. So you and I gain wisdom through prayer as we turn to God and we ask for understanding, we ask for help. As we anchor ourselves once again to God's word, the second way you and I gain, gain wisdom is through Scripture. 
And Joshua said, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it that you will be prosperous and successful. Psalms tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the mind. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Do not be a simpleton. Be wise. The word of God holds the commands of God and God fights for those who are obedient to his word. And thirdly, on a more practical level, is counselors and teachers. You and I will gain wisdom as you and I gain counselors and teachers. Associating with the wise, hence the church, the elders, the deacons, the others that God has called us. We are to walk alone. We are in this battle together. And there are some things that you may not understand through Scripture or not yet learn. And so we're here together to supply whatever might be lacking in that faith. So let us come together. When there are big decisions, involve us in your decision making. Seek the counsel of others. I find that when I do so, I make much better decisions. So in closing, let us give thanks to the Almighty Creator, our Savior, the sustainer of our life. For he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So that we may, through his strength, overcome our fear, knowing that our God fights for us. Amen? As we seek his counsel and obey his word. May we too be successful in taking possession of all that God has given us to the glory of God and for our good. God's people said, Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask Landon to please make his way up as well as the worship team. I just want to take a moment to pause and consider what I've shared with you in the scripture. I know we went through the chapters very quickly, but hopefully you got those three things there that is so important for us to understand. And then let's pray and respond to God's work. In what ways does God, do I need God to fight my battle? In what ways do I need to be obedient to him? And may God bless us. Landon, would you come close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.